listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. You got your Bibles. Turn with us to... Ephesians chapter number five. You've got your smart device. Ephesians five is where we're at. If you have U version on your smartphone or tablet, then in the U version over in the bottom area, it says, I think more or something, and you can find events. You click on events, there should be one with our name on it, and you can follow along. And most folks who follow along get discouraged because I stay in the top part of that for a very long time, and then it gets real close to your thinking it's go home time, and I still got a lot of that to go. So if that's going to frustrate you, don't follow along. But if you like to know where we're at, then, uh, then go ahead and follow along with us. We've been studying the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is simply a letter written by a gentleman by the name of Paul. Paul was an opponent of Jesus. Let me back up. Paul was an opponent of the message of Jesus. Paul never really encountered Jesus before he was crucified. But Paul was a, he was a religious guy. He was a, a Jewish leader that was doing his best to stop the progress of the good news that Jesus had been crucified, the Messiah had been crucified and raised victorious, and that, that he is the one that we are to be following. He's the one promised in the Old Testament. So Paul was really trying to stop that and put an end to it. And he encountered Jesus on the way to, to do some of that business in the north, in the, in the, toward the city of Damascus, Paul came into contact with Jesus. And I, I love what happened. In fact, I wish Jesus would do more of that today. Physically, audibly, he just stops Paul in his tracks. Or Saul is his name at the time. He stops him in his tracks and he goes, dude, what are you doing? And Saul's like, I, I, who are you first of all, Lord? And, and so he says, I want you to represent me. Quit, quit opposing me and start representing me. Start communicating the message instead of trying to stomp out the message. So, so God called Paul through a, a very personal encounter with Christ. And so Paul moved over into the follower of Jesus camp, and he began to spread the good news of Jesus everywhere he could, was the world's greatest missionary. And on one of his missionary journeys, he went to the city of Ephesus, which is in the southern western part of what is today modern-day Turkey. It's, uh, it, it would be considered Asia Minor in, in that time frame, modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was a port city. City, a really, really religious city. They worshiped the, the pagan goddess Diana. There was a lot of religion going on, but it was a very lucrative city. A lot of commerce happening in this port city of Ephesus. And so Paul went there and began preaching about Jesus, the Messiah, who was crucified and raised from the dead and inviting people to become followers, abandon their idol worship and become followers of Jesus. And he established there, when, when folks began to believe, he established a, a church there in the city city of Ephesus, spent a little bit more than two years kind of building that ministry and teaching the people and helping them understand this, this Jesus and, and now he's the son of who? Because remember, these people weren't Jewish. So they didn't have any idea who this Messiah or what that was about. So Paul's teaching them and helping them to understand the background before he moves on and continues on his journeys sharing the gospel and planting churches. Well, when Paul ended up back in Jerusalem on his last missionary journey, he's up back up in Jerusalem and he really, he's, he's made so many people mad at him of his own people, his own Jewish people, are so mad at him about this gospel that he's preaching that they start a riot in Jerusalem and the Romans took him into custody and, and trying to make sure that they don't as a mob, just lynch this guy, and, and they're trying to figure out what's what. And so through the process of, of the Roman authorities trying to figure out Paul and everything, he says, well, look, y- y'all don't seem to get what's going on. Let me present my case to Caesar. Because not only was Paul a Jewish man, he was also a Roman citizen because of the city he was born in. And so he says, I want to appeal to Caesar. Kind of like we would kind of keep appealing to the courts and, no, I don't like what you're saying. I'll just appeal to the next court and the next court and the next court. He says, I want to appeal to Caesar. 
And so Paul is in Rome under Roman incarceration in a house cell, a house jail kind of thing. And he starts writing letters to the churches that he's planted all over Asia Minor and over even over into Europe. And so he's writing these letters to encourage them because, well, he's got a lot of time on his hands and he's wanting to just, you know, interact and find out how things are going and encourage them in the faith that he's taught. That's what we have What we call the book of Ephesians is just the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. The first three chapters of this particular letter, the first movement as it's broken in half, Paul is just, he's pouring out encouragement on the people, reminding them who they are in Christ. Who are you as a result of what Christ has done for you and by faith receiving him and being brought into the family of God, he says in the first three chapters, by adoption. And we know that Jesus is also uh, referred to coming into the family by being born again. And so Paul is encouraging the people and he's reminding them of who they are and what they have as a result of being in the family of God by the grace of God through the work of God by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And so he's reminding, he's encouraging them, he's charging them up, he's geeking them up to get them ready to go out and live their faith because of who they are. And so many folks, when we get to this second half of the letter of Ephesians, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, we're going infi- to find instructions that Paul is giving to the Christians, to the Jesus followers. And so many folks have heard the message that in order to be a Christian, you have to do these things that are prescribed in these chapters and other sections of instructional language given to believers. The bottom line is, is these are instructions to those of us who are in the family. It's not talking about how to get in the family. It's not talking about what you need to do to stay in the family. It's talking about because you are in the family by faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone through his death, through his resurrection, by God's grace, we're God's children. And God says, so therefore, I want you to act like it. I mean, is that too much to ask your child as you're raising them and you're teaching them what it looks like to act and, 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 and how it is to be uh, done in our household to look at your child and say, remember what your last name is? They say, yes, sir. You go, well, act like it. That ain't how we act in this family, and that's what's happening in this part of Ephesians. And so we found in chapter number four that Paul has instructed the Christians to live out their faith, to live out who they are in the family, live it out by pursuing unity. He says you, you're put into one family and you come from all kinds of different races and, and creeds and languages. And guess what? If you know Jesus as Savior, that's the common denominator that draws us together. There's no more dividing. There's no more separating. There's coming together in the name of Jesus. And because of him, we can set all of those other things to the side. And those should never divide us because we're in the family together. We should pursue unity. Then he goes on to say that we should pursue holiness. He reminds us that when we come to Jesus, part of embracing Christ is realizing that God takes who we used to be dead in sin and incapable of anything pertaining to righteousness. When we come to faith in Christ, God takes the old us and sets it aside. He frees us from who we used to be, chained and and in bondage to sin with no help, no hope whatsoever. He sets that aside and he puts on us the new man who is capable of living an obedient life. Now, are we going to continue to sin? Yeah, because we still got sin resident in us. But we have the new man. We have the, the new us that is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And he says, so, so I want you to live out who you are in the family by remembering that the old you has been set aside. The new you is who is in charge now. And I want you to recognize when the habits and the activities of the old you show up. You got to remember, oh, no, no, those, I got to say no to that. That's the way I used to be. You guys know what that looks like. 
You know, you, you, there's things that used to be about you, but you know in the right circumstance, with the right opportunity, with the right set of, uh, 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 of encounters, you know how easy it is for somebody to say something to you, and then all of a sudden you're ready, and it's on the tip of your tongue, and you go, well, I can't say that. Hmm, I can't get that. that. ain't who I am. But it's right there, right? I mean, it's right there. And sometimes, you know, sometimes... It slips up on you, it dribbles out, you know, and you're like, man, I'm sorry, you have to go back and apologize. That's what Paul's saying. Look, let's continue to strive after holiness. Let's pursue holiness, and let's, let's live that way because the old you has been set aside. And then he says, let's live this out by walking in love. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, by imitating the forgiving love of God so that we, we demonstrate our love by our forgiveness to one another because God's forgiven us, and we imitate the sacrificial love of Jesus, our Savior. So we can spend a lot of time trying to imitate the forgiving love of God and the sacrificial love of Jesus, but he's like, that's what it looks like to be in the family. Hey, you're part of the family, so let's live that out, and it looks like love. And then I told you last week that there was a part of living out uh, the, the way of Christ by love because there's an upside-down love that's not really love, and it uses some language that I don't want to talk about in front of your kids because I don't know if you've talked about that or not. So we're going to put that aside. We'll come back to it later, and we'll deal with it, but we'll deal with that after, you know, they get back there. So, and then last week, we started talking about how that we're to walk in wisdom. We're to walk how, how do we walk in wisdom? When we walk in the way and the word of God, when we live out seeking to know him and to, to put to practice what we know and seeking to know more that we can put to practice and then watching the life of Jesus. And y'all remember how that, that way out there, that's the way of wisdom. Jesus walked the way of wisdom. It ends up in glory, but it has a lot of suffering along the way. And then there's that way of folly. That's the way we want to go. That's the way we're tempted to go. But we know that way ends up in just a whole lot of heartache and nothing ever pans out like it says it's going to. It's fun for a little while, but then it starts getting bitter in our mouth because because that's never what God designed. So we walk the way of wisdom when we follow the way and the word of God, looking at the direction at the life of Christ, and we walk that out, having understanding, knowing that we're going in the right direction, seeking to understand more, and then submitting ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit, allowing God the Holy Spirit to lead us in the way that we're to go. So we're called in chapter 4, verse 1, to live out. You know, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I want you to act like the family. So if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you're a part of the family, again, today's message is for you. If you're not a part of the family of God, then that's okay. I want you to listen along because it will help you understand God's design and purpose for the family. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse number 22, he's taking unity, holiness, he's taking love and wisdom, and now he's getting super focused, putting all of that together in the life of the home. Here's what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see 
that she respects her husband. Do you know what that passage of Scripture is in layman's terms? A minefield. Because when I said, wives, submit, some of y'all went, here we go. Should have stayed at the house today. And you guys that heard love your wives, you thought, I'm already doing a pretty good job if she can just fulfill her role. So here's what I'm not prepared to do today. I'm not prepared to take you through the minefield without backing up first and talking about the basics of marriage. Here's what I know. I know that there are some married folks in here. And this absolutely directly applies to married people, especially those who know Jesus as Savior. But also, no, we got some single folks here. And you say, well, this doesn't apply to me. Well, sure it does. Because one of these days, you just might want to be married. And you say, not me. Pastor Kevin, I'm not going to be married. Not going to be married again, whatever that is. Well, that's okay. Because you're going to run into some folks that are probably going to be talking about getting married. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to be needing to be able to communicate truth to them to help them understand what they're about to get themselves into. So we're going to back up a minute, and we're going to do a little bit of marital coaching. When a couple comes to me, and it's been a while, and it may be because of what I do. When a couple comes to me and says, Pastor Kevin, will you, will you marry us um, that always sounds weird. Will you perform the ceremony for us to be married? And, and I'll say, be happy to. Here's what that requires. $400. And, no, not $400. Here's what it requires. You have to meet with me for at least 13 weeks for an hour. And you have to read at least the book, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy. So you got to come and we got to get together at least 13 times for an hour. That's a little more than three months. And they all smile. Okay, but I know what they're thinking. 13 weeks? Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. Because it's important. My wife and I had, would you say, 30 minutes of premarital counseling, maybe? Maybe 30 minutes. That's it. Some of y'all had none. Didn't know anything about what you were getting into. And I just want to make sure folks get what marriage is so that they might step into it and live it for the purpose to which it was designed. I'm going to try to boil that down to about 30 minutes today. So let's go back to the book of Genesis and let's talk about marriage basics. Basic number one, marriage before we ever talk about wives submitting and lo- husbands loving and respecting and all that, before we ever talk about that, we got to understand what marriage was designed for. Number one, marriage was God's idea. Marriage was God's idea. Genesis chapter number two, verse number 18. After God had created all that, that is visible and invisible, he created humanity. But he created one of them, and that one was male by gender. Verse number 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, class, help me. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God created, on the first day, created, you know, the, the light and darkness. And God said that it was good. Okay. God's not going back and saying that something he did was not good. What he's doing is pulling the curtain back and letting us know that something that is currently incomplete is not good as it currently stands. God is not done creating. He's not finished with that. He wants to make a point that says, here's the man and he's in the midst of the world that I've created and he is by himself and that is not good. Okay? He says should be, uh, that it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beast of the field. I'm just wondering where he came up with rhinoceros, but that's just me. But for Adam, for the man, there was, fa- there was not found a helper fit for him. Cow. Bull. I get, yep, gotcha. Bull, cow. Gone, you know? Uh, yeah, so, uh, and, and my mind's just gone blank on all the other different names for, but dude horse and girl horse. Gone, you know, like dude chicken. Rooster. And girl, hen, get on. Got them all. And so then he gets to himself and he's recognizing, hmm, 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 no, no, nothing for me. So the Lord God, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, like literally took one of his ribs out of his side. And closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage was God's idea. It was God's idea to complete something that was lacking by design. And he wanted, I believe, to make the point not only to the first man, but to everyone who would read behind him, that this individuality was not good. This isolation, this by myself, this not having someone for me is not good. And so God created out of him something that was fit for him. The language of helper, I'll make a helper fit for or corresponding to him. It's not the language of a sidekick. This idea of as as a helper, a lot of times we think about daddies who have their sons or daughters with them at work and people say, oh, I see you got your little helper with you today. And we know what that means is they're they're here and they're probably going to be getting in your way, slowing you down, but you love them and you're glad they're here and they're going to be learning because they're inferior, they're incapable of doing what you can do because they're little and they don't get it and they're daddy's little helper. And we can take that and apply that to this word here where God's making Adam a little buddy. No, that's not it. He's not making a Robin for Batman. He's not making a sidekick. He's not making someone less to be company for the guy who can do it all himself. No, you'll learn through Pastor Keller that this idea helper has the idea of a strong helper. In this idea of helper, it's meaning that there is something lacking in the one that has need of help. It's, it's, it's not that he's broken because at this time man was not broken. God just didn't design him to be self-sufficient. He didn't design him to be able to, to do life with God on his own because God is the God of community because God is a God in community with himself. What is he? One God in three persons and they are God the Father, God the, God the Holy, right. All three uniquely distinct, but only one God. Don't try to explain that. You'll be up for 72 hours straight, and it won't do you any good. But he's revealed himself as the God in community, and I'm not going to create something that is isolated. I'm going to show him that he needs 
human community. And so he designs a counterpart that is strong where he is weak, that is weak where he is strong, that is different in many different ways, but at the same time, the DNA says human being. And so this idea of helper is a strong helper. A man and woman were created equal in worth. It's not like he created the golden Adam and then next row down is the silver woman and then next row down is the brass children. That's not how it works. God made them equal in worth, equal in importance. Yet God made them distinctive in design. There's just no way around the biology. There's no way around the psychology. He created men and women uniquely distinct. They have unique characteristics, and I believe that in God's design, not man's way of putting to practice God's design, but in God's design, he makes them different in function. You say, "Uh uh-uh, well, let me just ask you, mamas, are the daddies as good at nurturing as you are? And the global answer to that question is no. Because if you leave the babies home with daddy as they grow, he's going to throw them some distance for fun. And it'll be fun for the kid too, but you will have coronary uh, activity. So we're different characteristically, distinctively different for function. God's idea for marriage was to introduce intimacy and oneness through covenant, through commitment, through through the recognition that we are to be one. Through the promises of covenant, he has created this concept of ultimate intimacy. Now, here's here's the wild thing, is that marriage intimacy is to reflect the intimacy that God desires with us as it applies to that closeness, as it applies to that absolute vulnerability. Don't let it get weird because God desires for us to know him completely as he knows us. He wants us to want that understanding of him and he gives us a glimpse of that in the oneness of marriage it's God's design because humans in the community of love in loving relationship actually reflect the triune creator in his glory when when a marriage is is uh, is created and its and its promises are made and covenants are struck and the two become one yet distinctively they're different yet at the same time they represent one new thing us instead of you and me yet in us is you and me we uniquely reflect this crazy amazing thing that God is us. And God is him. It's God's design, but you all know what happens. It doesn't stay that way because in God's love, he invites the humans to respond to his love because they want to. How can they respond to his love because they want to? By being obedient to his one instruction. One instruction. One rule, y'all. One rule. That's the only one you got to keep, just one rule. And what they do? They broke it. They broke the rule. They disobeyed God. Sin. 
plunging mankind and all of creation into sin. While marriage was God's idea, the number one basic, basic number two is marriage was broken by sin. Not only was the man broken, not only was the woman broken, that unity that they were brought into was broken and corrupted by sin. Sin corrupted and broke the sinners as well as the created order. In man, caring, giving love was replaced with domination. Instead of being the one who cared for and nurtured his wife, He became to be the one who dominated. Instead of being the one who strengthens and completes, the woman, the wife, replaced that strengthening and that that strong help with competition for control. You say, how does that work out? Well, Genesis 3, 16, after the sin, God comes and finds them, and then God starts explaining to them all of the consequences that are going to be as a result of their disobedience. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. I expected to hear a lot more feminine amens in that. Oh, well, but... Your desire, he says, shall be for your husband. Your desire is going to be to take control. And guess what? And he, your husband, will rule over you. See, he was designed to to take his strength that he was given and and care for you know now he's going to use his strength to dominate and she who was designed to come along and complete where he was lacking is going to be looking to gather up all she can to take over control from him marriage y'all is broken by sin because we're broken by sin We trade this this coming together as one through covenant to to meet one another's uh, lacking, to, to be together with one another in our walk with our Creator. And we begin seeing this union as the seeking to have my needs met by someone who's compatible to meet my needs. We, 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 want to, we want to realize that, you know what, you're right. I, I'm not as good by myself as I am because I got needs, and I need somebody to fulfill what I'm lacking in or what I think I'm lacking in. I need somebody to fill that up, and I'm looking for somebody who's compatible with me, and that's never God's design. You say, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to look for compatibility. Would love for you to delve into that subject with the meaning of marriage. We'll talk about that later. So marriage is is all of a sudden changed from this beautiful thing to this fulfilling of what I need. Marriage is being constantly devalued and often completely disregarded in human history, especially in pursuit of the deceptive soulmate. You know what the soulmate is, don't you? It's a lie in our society that says that, that there's this ultimate one. That, that, and, and here's the thing. Because you chose to go to this school instead of that school, chances are great you missed out. Or because you went to this school and took this class instead of taking that class, you missed meeting him. You missed meeting her. And so you married who you thought was your soulmate, and all of a sudden, you've been on Facebook, and you're just like, man, my spouse ain't meeting my needs. My spouse isn't, you know, he's not turning the bells on like he, she's not, you know, she's not wowing me like she used to. But boy, I know what happened. I missed my chance because my soulmate was the one that I didn't go out with in college that I could. And I'm having a conversation with her right now, and I know I, know I missed her. She was my soulmate. You know what that is? Garbage. Now, I'm not saying 
that God does not bring us together, that God does not orchestrate our paths and, and bring those that, you know, God knows that he spared me from a whole bunch of wrong ones to get to the right one, okay? So I'm, I'm saying that God works like he works. But this concept of the soulmate is that I might have married the wrong one. Can I tell you that's not true? Now, you might have married wisely, and you might be feeling the, the effects of not marrying, or you might have married wisely, and your spouse has made some really bad decisions, and things are broken because you're broken because sin breaks us. But this idea that what God wants me to do is get out of this so I can go find my soulmates, garbage. Why is it garbage? Because it's broken by sin. Marriage is broken where selfishness dominates. You know why we have the, the arguments that we have most of the time? You know why we get upset and, and, and pout? Well, I pout. I don't know about y'all, but we pout over things. You know why we do that? Self-centeredness. We want what we want. And a lot of times we just want the other one to admit that we're right. Is there anybody who's ever actually right other than Christ? No. We come at it. Self-centeredness. This idea of 50-50 philosophy. Well, we're just, you know why our marriage is successful? Because we decided early on that we was, that we was coming into this 50-50. I was bringing my 50. She's bringing her 50. You know what happens if she doesn't bring her 50? You know what all you got left is? 50. Half won't ever spend what whole costs. That's why a hundred nothing is the only way to go. But marriage is broken, and so we go, you're probably going to hurt me. And she's like, yeah, I know, you're probably going to hurt me. Well, I'm going to hold back. If you don't hurt me, I won't hurt you. You, you give good to me, I'm going to get 50-fit garbage because marriage is broken. Endless expectations, all withdrawal with no deposits, and the list goes on and on and on because marriage is broken. Genesis 3, 21. But there's hope. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. In the middle of their sin, in the middle of their brokenness, in the middle of this marriage never going to be the way he designed it to be just like he wanted it to be because of their sin, he comes to them as this one flesh. And he provides a covering not only for them individually, but for them as a one unit. You see, sin broke into our world, and, and immediately when sin was exposed, God's heart of redemption came to the need announcing that there would be something to come to affect what they have broken. Now, they didn't get, I don't think they got it all when God says, you know, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and he's going to strike the heel and he's going to bruise it. And I don't think they had a clue what he was talking about at that time. But God was coming to meet that brokenness with a redemptive heart of grace and love and an absolute determination to bring redemption to what was broken. Not only did he cover them individual, he's covering their union. Chapter 4, verse number 1. Adam knew Eve's wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Marriage is God's idea, but sin broke marriage. But God's grace and God's blessing is still available in the broken marriage. And that's good news. And we see it all throughout the Scripture. God, God's continuing to bless and honor His design. And even though it's broken, He's coming to meet that brokenness. He's coming to be that refocus in what is broken. But it only gets better. 
While marriage is God's design, sin broke marriage. But we all know what came in the person of Christ. His death, his resurrection, the being set free from sin, the being given new life, the being given the opportunity to walk in newness with a whole new outlook and a whole new ability to follow in obedience. Marriage, number three, experiences transformation in the gospel as well. You see, when I come to know Christ as Savior, the gospel brings about transformation in me. I I embrace what Jesus has done for me in his death, in his resurrection, as payment for my sin. And God sets aside the old man and he transforms me. He begins to recreate in me. And so now all of a sudden, I'm different than I was. And when a different me comes into a marriage situation, guess what also becomes different? The marriage itself. When we are transformed by the gospel, the gospel can transform our marriage if we will pursue it. That's what we're going to talk about next week how we're pursuing the gospel in marriage on the basis of the instruction to the wife and the husband. But in these few minutes that we have left, let me tell you about the transformational nature that marriage can be when a husband and a wife are both followers of Jesus by faith. Let's talk about what marriage can be. Even though it's broken by sin, let's talk about what the transformation in us can do in the oneness that is ours. And even if you're saying, it's only me, he's not a believer, it's only me, she's not a believer. The good news is, is that you even bring that gospel transformation to it just by what you come to the table with. Listen to these things. Here's just some thoughts I wrote down. We are confronted by the gospel, through the gospel. We're confronted by our own individual brokenness and selfishness. The gospel brings me into clear vision of being able to see my brokenness and see my selfishness and understand that Christ has set me free from that. That allows me to go into the marriage knowing that I am broken and selfish, but that is not how I have to live it out. In fact, I'm called to live out another way. It transforms me by setting us free from the slavery to sin, and it makes us free to live with and for others as uh, more than ourselves. The gospel sets me free and allows me to live my life with others and for others more than myself. That transforms my marriage when I take that concept and realize that I can live for her as I live with her in community. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to love others sacrificially as Christ loves us. I'm not just talking about the guys. I'm talking about the ladies too. We, we begin to recognize that God, the Holy Spirit, will empower us to live a life of love sacrificially for others as Christ has loved us. We are able to see and imitate the sacrificial love of God as displayed in the life and death of Jesus. We are able to understand marriage through the lens of mutual submission and sacrificial love. I'll take you back just in your mind, back to Ephesians 5, where he says, living in wisdom, meaning that we submit mutually to one another, saying, you know, what's, what's best for me is not necessarily best. I want what's, what Christ thinks is best. And so we're submitting to one another, wanting what he wants more than what we want. It enables us to see the marriage through that land. We're given a unique in marriage, a unique arena to practice vulnerability and transparency. The marriage is not just to be the only place of vulnerability and transparency. I'm supposed to live vulnerable and transparent with my brothers and sisters. That's the way we pursue unity and holiness and love and wisdom. And the marriage gives me 
the environment, a unique arena to practice what it means to be vulnerable and transparent. It gives us a unique arena to have and to be an authentic friend. How horrible it is to have better friends outside your marriage than you have in it. But if you have a true friendship in your marriage, that is to inform the friendship that you have with others. It gives us a unique arena to experience God's desire for Christian community, the church, the healthy marriage gives us an arena that's unique, that helps us to understand how it's supposed to be with everybody else, except, is that not what you want? Like, do you want the relationship with everybody else because it's so bad at the house? Man, it should be the other way around for believers. Our marriage should be so community-tied that it informs how we want to carry that in to the rest of the community. We're given a unique arena to practice the one another's prescribed to followers of Jesus. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, weep with one another, rejoice with one another. All of those arenas, it gives us the opportunity. It gives us a unique arena to disciple and be discipled as we pursue Jesus Christ together and for the other. Spouses, would you say that your counterpart is your biggest discipler? Is your spouse your most important disciple? That's what he's put us together for. That's what he's called us to. And marriage gives us that unique arena. We're able to reflect the message of the gospel to the watching world as we practically live out our roles in the marriage. We'll talk more about that next week. We're able to reflect the image of God as we mutually submit. We've already said that. We're able to reflect the love relationship between the Savior Jesus and his bride, the church, as we live. Marriage gives us the chance to show the world the gospel. If folks that have been transformed by the gospel are seeing marriage as the vehicle by which to do so. So let me ask a question as we close. What best describes what you bring to your marriage? Even if you're single. This is a question. What, what best describes what you bring to the relationships you have? Is it brokenness? Or is it the gospel? See, we got a lot of brokenness that we can bring to the, to the relationships that we're in, specifically our marriage. We can bring broken. We got it. We know how it works. But that's the old us. We're to be bringing the gospel to our marriage. We're to be bringing that, that transformation to our marriage because of what Christ has done in us. It's given us the opportunity to live that out in real time with the one that God has put us with to be one, united in him for him to him together. Paul says, one chapter back in Ephesians 4, 3, uh, 4, 1 through 3, I urge you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, of your relationship that you have because of Christ, to which you've been called. Live this way with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What are you bringing to your relationships most commonly? Your brokenness or the gospel? And if, if we were to today just consider the answer to that one question and go, Lord, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to be your child and I'm bringing more of my brokenness to my relationship, specifically if I've got a spouse. I'm bringing more of my brokenness 
into that relationship, then, then I'm bringing the transformation that you're making us. I, I, I'm trying to live out who I am in Christ more with the folks that are around me than I am with the one that I'm to be one with. Or maybe it is that you're not married. You think about, Lord, what do I want to be in a future marriage? What, 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 what was it that was broken in me in the previous And just let God address that and allow him to transform so that you might be gospel-fueled in the home, with a a spouse-to-be, in the community of believers to the watching world around us. It's Christ that transforms us, but it is us that have to choose to walk that out if we are his children by faith. Make sense? You excited about next week? No, you're not. That's okay. Let's ask God to do a transformational work in our thinking and in our acting. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who willingly gave himself up for us to be our Savior who championed the opportunity you laid before him to make forgiveness, new life, make us a part of the family possible. He went to the cross, not looking back, laying down his life willingly that we might be brought to you. Having our sins cleansed, given new life, new destiny, new hope, new opportunity. God, may that gospel of of newness, may it transform us and and may may it consume us in such a way that it just spills out in every aspect of our life, especially in our marriage. Father, I know that I am, I am not the one setting the example of bringing gospel to the marriage. I have just as hard a time with it as everybody else. Selfishness, I get. Domination, I get it. That's natural. Want what I want? Yes, I know how to do that. But God, I need your Holy Spirit to continue His work of transforming my heart so that I might look more like Jesus than I do myself. So, God, we ask that you'll do a work in our life. Meet us where we are. We thank you for your forgiveness, for the newness that you bring to us when we just simply...